The salt air of the ocean stings the nostrils of the passengers aboard a meager vessel as it is tied off to a rickety slip. The deckhands roughly toss the bevel-topped and barrel-staved trunks of the passengers, the wear and tear of the luggage perfectly matching the ripped seams, loosening threads, and worn-out soles of what were once fine clothes and regalia. The travelers step off the boat onto the sagging wood of the dock, making no attempt to hide their collective sneers of disgust and distaste. None, however, matched the intensity and fury upon the face of a small, six-year-old girl. Her clothing more delicately patched and repaired than any of the others, she appears as if she would deign to spit at the mere sight of all of the peasants that surround her. Were she not currently hiding her own fierce thirst and hunger? At the end of the dock stand several more people, their clothes even more worse for wear, though clearly once no less fanciful, their faces adorned with similar scowls and looks of disdain for their surroundings. The passengers march delicately to more stable ground, everyone greeting each other with only curt, silent nods on the barren docks. As the shipping vessel quickly departs again, one woman squats down to meet the gaze of the young girl, who takes her time to return it in kind, ignoring what few people that bother to linger by, the woman speaks. This is not the end for us, Belcora. The Haravexes will rise again, this time with a new goal to proceed the first. Revenge. The little girl looks away and takes in the devastation that is her family's ruin. The woman continues. You are as we have always said you are, Belcora. It will be upon your might that we rise again. Destruction to Absalom. Muttering the last part only loud enough for present company to hear. Destruction to Absalom. Destruction to Absalom. Destruction to Absalom. The rest repeat, one by one. Save the little girl, who instead looks at each and every family member, sizing them up and down, their sorry states blustering in the coastal wind. Finally returning her gaze to the woman, she speaks. Destruction to Absalom, and death to them all. Listeners, and welcome to The Adventure. My name is Freeman Eisen. I am the project lead at Uncharted North and the GM for our very first project, Stemming the Tide, in which we'll be playing Paizo's Adventure Path Abomination Vaults. We are not the, uh, the first to be doing this in a podcast format, but we're very excited to be uh, introducing it to you in our own style and flavor and format we're going to be doing things a little bit differently than the than the norm and the and the 
the uh, the tradition of, of a lot of podcasts in this way and uh, are of this of this type and uh, I can't wait for everyone to see what we've got and experience all the creativity that this group has has put into it uh, with I mean I was about to say the better part of a year but it's been well more than a year at this point in the planning and, and the working and it is thanks to these people joining me that we are able to get this off the ground. Uh, and I'm going to introduce them to you one by one, starting with a longtime colleague, collaborator, and pr- uh, business partner of mine, James Kidd. Oh, uh, sorry. I had no idea that I was going first. Hi. Oh, hi, yeah. Listeners. Uh, yeah. Welcome. Welcome to our, our, new, our newest project. Thanks. Um, no worries. <laughs> is, this, is this where you want me to tell you who I'm playing? Hell yeah. Okay. Uh, James, who, who are you playing? Yeah, okay. I am playing uh, Samal Keth, uh, human fighter, the most interesting of combinations. He is a man whose face shows his age, and it also tells you everything you need to know about him. He's a firm, serious guy, and he has a hooked nose that just just yells his willingness to uh, enter conflict. But it's it's really his <laughs> size, his bulk, his mass that makes you want to listen to him. He's uh, retired from life as a deckhand and currently runs a textile stall in the Otari market. He likes books, a good bitter cup of coffee, and a quiet game of dominoes. His dislikes are riding animals, gambling, and repeating himself. (laughs) Yeah, for the listeners, uh, James menacingly pointed at us when he said that. (laughs) Well, that brings me to the interrupter over here, my uh, personal uh, punching bag and whipping boy. An ex-fellow bartender who I met sitting at the bar. James and I both met sitting at his bar talking nerd things, all nerd things. It is, of course, Scott Barber, also known as Scoot McBarbs. Yep, that's me. Scott, tell us about you and who you're playing. All right, well, I'm me, um, uh, but I will be playing (laughs) Sage Tulak in this adventure path, uh, who is a half-elf sorcerer um, with the aberrant bloodline. Um, he's a lot of my comfort zone. I'm usually kind of a roguish or melee type of player, but, uh, decided to switch it up a little bit. This can be my first spellcaster. So, you know, bear with me through some of the mistakes here, listeners, and, uh, <laughs> we should have a good time learning together around town. He is actually a fortune teller, uh, and he lives in his little wagon in which he also conducts his fortune telling business right outside of the market in Otari. Uh, he's been in Otari for a couple years, um, originally from Absalom, but as his powers started to increase without any control over them, he decided to move away from his, um, you know, kind of middle class family and uh, strike out on his own, you know, so he wouldn't hurt them with his new powers, which both excite and terrify him. <laughs> Wicked. And then finally, we, of course, have uh, an old co-worker of mine from about 10 years ago, I think we, we calculated. Uh, it is, of course, of course it is Duncan Forbes, everybody. Uh, the only person um, that is not on the same side of the country, of the old frosty land of Canada. Uh, he's sitting on the East Coast while the rest are from the West. But uh, Duncan, tell us about your character. Well, hello, Freeman, and hello, listeners. Um, I'm going to be playing Physic the Slouch, and uh, Physic's a bit of an odd duck slash goblin. Well, not like a duck goblin, just a goblin. <laughs> I mean, he, he seems a little bit clumsy and unaware, but he's really, really invested and really good at his craft, which is alchemy, and specifically healing people because he's a surgeon. Um, he's a nervous... <clears throat> surgeon? Don't start with me, Freeman. Okay, sorry. That's my bad. (laughs) He's a nervous, paranoid little fella (laughs) with next to no social skills. And, uh, but I mean, he really, he stands up pretty tall, but not really tall, but he stands up when the, when the rough gets going. Fair enough. How tall is he? He's, uh, three feet, two and a half. All right. Very good. Well, for better or for worse, this project has rekindled my friendship with Duncan and uh, is just fostering and creating a better foundation with myself and James and Scott. Uh, What you might not pick up on uh, is that they all actually hate each other, but that's okay. Uh, There are a couple things... (laughs) Most dysfunctional group ever. Uh, 
It'll come out in the role play. <laughs> I hope so. It'll make for great flavor. <laughs> Episode one, Samal versus Physic. Episode two, Physic's funeral. <laughs> There's a couple couple things to point uh, to touch down on here. Uh, one thing is for sure, what's going to differ from our format uh, in this episode one and going forward in the first few episodes is that we're not going to do some massive info dump uh, for a full episode for you. We're going to get into the, me- the the of the adventure pretty quickly, and we are going to roll out. The story of these characters and the origin of their them being here and where they're going and this whole narrative as we go. We're going to we have a, a group here that's dedicated to collaborating on, on creative writing and expositions, and that's part of the format that we really really want to do. And I'm very very excited to find a way to roll that out in a really organic fashion to really sort of keep everyone roped in. The few things to touch down on are things like we are playing remotely. I think that's probably obvious by now. We are using hero points, but altering them ever so slightly. All rules still apply, with the exception of the fact we will not be losing at the end of a session and gaining one at the beginning of a session as rules are written, but rather they will they will roll over. Otherwise, all other rules apply. We are using the free archetype uh, variant rule, which is important. Um, you probably have noted that we have only a three-person party. Free archetype is a very popular variant rule for uh, party sizes of three and four. It does not really break the game. It, it really just adds versatility and flavor and, let's be honest, a whole bunch more reading. Makes it way more difficult on us. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, you'll have some extra extra bells and whistles. Uh, we are playing on the Foundry Virtual Tabletop, and all music that we are using for this project uh, is by Will Savino at Music D20. Also, all of the artwork on our website and Patreon is by our good friend Greyhood, and uh, we are not... Let's, let's clear right now. We are not masters of every rule. Um, we will talk rules as we go, but when necessary, we will gear towards the rule of cool and adjust accordingly afterward. And secret checks will be used, but sometimes we're going to play fast and loose with them. We're not going to hold those really too close to our chests, and that's just going to be on me at my discretion as we go. Uh, that being said, all the credits and everything will be in their appropriate places, uh, in the episode descriptions, the website, and all that. And with those ground rules, are you guys ready to jump in? Born ready. Yeah, buddy. Let's get it. Yeah, let's stem this tide. <laughs> you guys ready to see the first map of the adventure oh, already? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think so. It's happening anyway. Freeman has transformed the map, and we are ready to roll out. And I am scared. All right, listeners. First map of the game appears to be a structure of some sort. Some oddly shaped <laughs> fort with like a, like a river running below something like almost through it it's very difficult to tell so far on this map uh but it is a battle map and we are less than 20 minutes into the first episode and that fucking (laughs) excites me (laughs) we are using a map uh maps reimagined and recreated by a fellow named goes by narky uh he's done a lot of hard work and i've helped him kind of correct uh, me and among many people help him correct a few things and they're really gorgeous maps But allow me to set the scene uh, for this map for you. The sound of frogs and mosquitoes mixes the water sloshing against muddy shores, all muffled by the ever-present mists that linger in the aptly named Fog Fen. As the mists clear, a shadow looms from the cloying swamp vapors. A sprawling ruin of stone and wood squats atop an island in the soggy marsh. The upper floors have largely collapsed, leaving only the stone walls of the ground floor intact. And above these ruins towers an out-of-place monument, a colossal lighthouse. Who you can you can tell already who's the the painted walls and the iron-cased crown have resisted the corrosive effects of the surrounding swamp. Along the overgrown trail that leads to this crumbling entrance and ruin marches three locals of the nearby town of Otari. A hum and a song can be heard from one of them. When the fog is creeping on the moon is low When the town is sleeping gone and starts to glow That's when she arises for her midnight lunch Kids are prizes for her teeth to crunch But if you obey me and obey the rules You're safe from Belacara, she just eats the fools <laughs> Tell me what 
this large man humming and singing a tune looks like as he walks down at the head of the marching order. He is uh, not the kind of man you would expect to sing a nursery rhyme to him gently under his breath. Uh, his, his gray hair dances gently in the wind, and he has his chin held high, his eyes up, scanning the horizon. On his left arm is a steel shield, and below that on his hip is a quiver. On his right side is a chipped and worn, odd-looking axe. It's a specialized tool and a remnant from his past life. It is a clean, sharp-looking blade with a mean-looking hook on the back. He has a bright red woolen cloak fluttering in the wind that definitely looks out of place for Otari. And skulking close behind him, I believe, is none other than Sage Tulak. Tulak? Tulak. Are we going with Tulak or Tulak? I think we're going Tulak. Okay, you told me Tulak at the bar last night, I Scott. absolutely did, but after <laughs> after the asshole. after the beers, I changed my mind. Right. Okay. So now, now, so yeah. Now, see, so you're dead to me. Uh, it's fine. That's part of his mystique. <laughs> the what does Sage Tulak look like? Also, actually, sorry. Before I ask you that, I want to know why. Why do you feel you say it's uh, James? You said that uh, somehow it's unlike somehow to to sing a song, or it's not the sort of thing you'd expect from from a man of his physique. Why do you feel like he's singing that song? Well, it stems from what their conversation with Rin uh, Savinci last night. She, while talking to them, brought up this particular rhyme, and he hasn't been able to shake it out of his head ever since, so he's just reciting it to himself over and over again, trying to figure it out why she would have brought that particular riddle up, or that particular rhyme up. Do you feel he's nervous at all as a result, or, or is he just, just kind of stuck on the subject? He's not nervous about that in particular. Um, Samal is retired. Like he's he's an older gentleman who's uh, who's long since given up adventuring. He's he's been retired for four or five years now, so he's nervous about his skills more than anything. He still takes care of himself, but he's he's afraid that he's not going to be as sharp as he was in his youth. And he knows why Rin chose him, and that's because of his skills and 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 his physique and his his history and his abilities. So he's he's more nervous because he's not sure if he's going to be able to live up to that. His he's here, dear, supposedly to protect these people, and he's he's not confident in his abilities anymore. All right, Tulak, you have the floor. What do you look like? Sage Tulak is wrapped in a long and simple black cloak, with a large hood, also adorned with some purple tassels. His wrists and neck are covered with eclectic jewelry. And a small leather bag is attached to his hip, which clicks and clacks as he walks. Pulling down his cloak, he is a thin and good-looking half-elf with dark tossed hair um, loosely tied up on top of his head. The only thing that isn't handsome about him is he has one mesmerizing blue eye while the other is completely pupilless. And as he walks forth, I should say, pulls his hood down and brings his hands together and moves them in a slight circular gesture and a purple emanation of light comes all around him and he casts mage armor on himself as he approaches this building oh hot damn he's already getting into moves and moves i didn't tell you could use moves i move we are in spell territory i love it ah, he likes to move it move it all right uh and how is how is sage tulak feeling he is nervous because for him he has no background in combat, which he essentially thinks is a high possibility here. He really is searching for answers, not only in where his power is coming from, but also this aberrant bloodline that he seems to have. He doesn't really understand where any of it's coming from and how it's all come forth. And uh, Rin told him that he might find some answers to his questions here, but the thing is, is that his powers are all quite dark. And having a nice, good childhood in Absalom from a well-to-do family, uh, he's actually pretty scared about that. So he's really trying to come to terms with where all this power is coming from, and he's nervous to find out. And finally, bringing up the end, the old classic goblin caboose. We've got Physic, the slouch, also known as the slouch. And what's he look like? So bringing up the rear is Physic the Slouch, and he is stock upright at the moment. 
I mean, he's got a little bald green head <laughs> that's darting back and forth nervously on the lookout for danger. And his eyes, like, they're dark and beady, but he's always alert. Um, he's got a hand on his dagger that's on his belt because he's so freaked out right now. And he's kind of comforted by the crossbow on his back. I mean, he, he tries to make it look like keeping up with the others is easy on his, his tiny little legs. But it's it's not very convincing. He's a, he's a, he's a clumsy little dude. Um, he's, he's wearing some armor, and over the armor he's kind of got a lot of like bangles and what you might call found relics. And for the listener, relics is in air quotes, because it's more like trash. <laughs> he, he came from a rough upbringing. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> he's kind of like the trash, the trash goblin lady from Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, imagine if you could uh, pretend you were being protected by, like, tinfoil and frying pans or something like that, but a little more elaborate. Right. So imagine a raccoon. Yeah, a trash panda. He's a little <laughs> goblin trash panda. But, I mean, the, those things aren't really protecting him that much, but he does have a satchel around his waist full of goodies, and he's got a bandolier around his chest that's full of, like, flasks and uh, vials of various explosive or healing materials. <laughs> the two things you definitely want to put side by side. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, he's, he's got them well separated and well insulated. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Yeah, that's physic. Uh, beautiful. And how is he feeling, uh, taking up the rear here? And is he is he also nervous? He is shitting himself. Uh, he did, <laughs> is uh, he's he's nervous to begin with. And um, but the thing is, he'd listen to Rin tell him to do anything to the end of the earth because he thinks that she knows something about the world. He he's convinced the world's gonna end because he saw. A, a terrible vision once in his past and he's kind of trying to figure out what that all means and this is almost kind of going into his uh, into his prophecy and you kind of want to find out what, find out what it means but uh, we'll see where it goes from there cool well um, just to get a couple ground rules here for the area um, what you're looking at is you're standing on the southern side of this this massive structure um, the, there's water that surrounds the whole thing. So the, the main ruins do sit on uh, basically an island. Um, the water closest and nearest the, uh, the structure is actually relatively shallow. Um, but as you can see, some of the larger parts, especially to the west, uh, get, uh, they get bigger and much deeper. And you can imagine the depths can range from 10 to 15 feet. So you need a boat or swimming to navigate for sure. Um, where the roof and ceilings have not collapsed... You're basically looking at 10 feet high ceilings uh, as a general rule, unless otherwise stated. And the only illumination for all of this comes from the sunlight that filters through the constant fog. Uh, a lot of the insides of these buildings will have holes in the ceilings and stuff like that. So you'll, you'll unless again, unless stated otherwise, you've got visible light. We're not even going to go dim right away. And uh, we are looking at your arrival around 8.30 a.m., the 19th of Rova, 4721AR. And the first thing in front of you is an outbuilding that you can quickly kind of skirt around and look and see there's a bridge that crosses the water from it to the main building. And the doors to this outbuilding are cracked and rotten, but still sit in their frame. And it is now up to you guys what you want to do. You can go left, you can go right, you can go into the door. Small start by uh, just... Scouting the outside of the building, getting a, a better picture of what it looks like. Like you said, he'll move off to the side, see that there's a bridge there, and then continue to move around to try and find a way around. Uh, and it looks like there's a second outbuilding that's kind of covering this river gap. Yes, that's true, yep. And uh, the uh, the bridge to that one is actually made of stone in particular, and much higher up, it appears. Okay. Uh, so he's just trying to get a lay of the land, uh, a better picture of what's happening here before he does anything else. For sure. Will you roll me a perception? I can do that. That is a 17. So as you are taking a little boo around, to the left or the west, you have a much bigger portion of the swamp. Uh, it's getting a bit lakish. Uh, there's not much you can do over there. As you go to the right, there is a very, very uh, obvious pond between the two outbuildings. And that pond is a tangles of, of reeds uh, that grow in thick clusters around the whole edge. It's very muddy. The water appears murky with algae, and there is a half-decayed body of a three-foot-tall, scaly humanoid that lies on the pool's northern bank, 
and it is half buried in mud and leaves. So that stands out to you. Otherwise, as you circle around the other outbuilding to the east, you just find more uh, water and deeper uh, get that that does grow a bit deeper as it as it uh, extends north and further east. Uh, the pond itself looks like it's maybe, you know, something you can sort of track your way through or across or around. But otherwise, that uh, that the main thing that stands out is that half decayed body. Oh, there, physic, Tulak. We found our first casualty here. There seems to be something buried across this part of the water. Let's try the door, I suppose. Be wary, keep your wits about you. And who will move to the doors? Tulak with a grim nod uh, looks at the door and raises a hand and attempts to detect magic. Okay. And I think I'm going to take the investigate action. Okay. So what that means is I'm I'm essentially moving at half speed, which for Samal is very slow. Uh, <laughs> and using recall knowledge as a secret check to discover clues among the wreckage. Uh, but you'll be doing the recall knowledge because I believe that's a secret check. Indeed. Indubitably. And he uh, tries to open the first set of doors. Okay. And do I see anything with detect magic, by the way? You do not at the moment. There's nothing to be noted. You go to try the doors, and they open easily, but essentially just come away and crumble from the frames, nearly falling on top of you. Uh, but they are just so rotted and damp that they really couldn't cause damage. They just sort of crumble in your hands, fall to the side, and open into this small building. There are swaths of mildew and mold that cover the damp surfaces of what this is clearly a watchtower, appearing as green and black smears all over the dull stone walls. The door frames uh, in the walls to the north and south rotted long ago and are barely intact, while a few collapsed chairs lie on the floor in a small and amid small heaps of foul-smelling gray lumps. Thick sheets of dusty cobwebs hang from above, obscuring any view of the ceiling, effectively creating a drop ceiling about seven feet high. Okay. Uh, could I change my exploration activity to scout, and he will move ahead, gesturing to Tulak and Physic to kind of wait there for a second. With uh, trembling hands, Tulak lets him go ahead and pulls out a dagger from his sheath in his belt. Uh, a little un uncertain in his own abilities. As soon as you step in, Samal, you hear a voice. Ah Let's go ahead and see what everyone speaks. <laughs> oh Let's go boy. down the list. Let's go down the very interesting list of languages for all of your characters. Let's <laughs> get that out of the way. <laughs> we'll start with Small, of course, who's entered the room. Uh, yeah, so Small speaks common, orcish, and undercommon. Okay. Tulak? Uh, common, elven, abyssal, and necrol. Ooh, okay. And physic? Languages are Abyssal, Common, Goblin, and Isoki. Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, Isoki. Oh, that sounds yeah. good. Um, well, in that case, fortunate that Samal went in first, because he's the only one who understands Undercommon. And the what they said was, Welcome to the parlor! Make yourself at home! Watch out for nasty bugs! Partake in the magical pixie mud! There is a voice coming from somewhere. I cannot tell where at the moment, but they've told me, and I suppose us, to partake in magical pixie mud. Does that ring a bell for anyone? Uh, you you kind of look around the room, and you're like, okay, these are the home. It's clearly not a parlor. Nasty bugs. Look around. You can quickly spot some mosquitoes or a spider or different beetles. But then you see the gray, these foul-smelling gray lumps all over the ground. And that's the only thing that looks like magical pixie mud to you. Partake, partake! 
he's going to put one hand on the axe at his hip, heft his shield, specifically take the raise a shield action if I'm allowed to outside of combat, mm-hmm. and uh, keep stepping towards the back doors. Okay, uh, you can't do can't raise the shield whilst you are scouting. That's how okay. I'm going to rule then that. He will continue to scout. Okay, you step further into the room, and you hear the voice to go again. No, we said partake. <laughs> I will not be partaking. He replies in undercommon. Roll me a perception. That is a twenty-three. Ooh, nice. Naughty. Okay, <laughs> so uh, you uh, can tell these voices are coming from above you, above this cobwebbed drop ceiling. You look up, and you get a good angle through those cobwebs, and you see that there is a series of slipshod, soggy ropes and planks built above, near the actual ceiling proper. And not only that, you've critically succeeded on that DC, and you can spot a hole, a three-foot diameter hole in the northwest corner. And... You can kind of see, and I didn't point it out earlier, but you can kind of see that there is, amongst the tangles of vines and everything over by the pond, there is one particular vine that actually did connect to the side of that building uh, and over to the stone bridge, the other outbuilding. And as soon as you kind of take all that in and say that to this voice, we're going to roll for initiative. Oh. Getting right into it. Hot start, boys. Oh, boy. He really <laughs> wanted you to eat that mud. <laughs> Not happening. And let's see what we got for some sweet, sweet initiative. Let's start with Samal. Samal rolled a 14 on the die for a 19. All right. And Physic? Okay. Physic has a 14. All right. And Tulak? That is a six on the die oh, for nine. Sweet caster initiatives. <laughs> uh, all right, starting off, there is a lovely dart that flies out from above at you, Samal. Okay, it's gonna be a ten to hit. No, no, sir. Not not looking good. Okay, and another one comes your way. Uh, natural one. <laughs> off to a great start. Yeah, no, no, sir. And one more for a total of two. With these these, two, 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 these darts come flying at you. It is your turn. Uh, first action he's going to take is going to be to raise his shield. Okay. Uh, so that will give him an increase of AC and the option to shield block down the road should he decide one of these darts might be a little more deadly than the other. Uh, the second is, can I roll a perception check to try and find out exactly where these darts are coming from? I'm guessing I have no idea at this point, right? Yeah, go ahead and uh, here I'll actually do a secret roll on that. Um, yeah, you are quite sure they are coming uh, from over this way, uh, close to that hole in the northwest corner. Okay, so with his last action, he will step closer to where, where he thinks these darts are coming from. Beautiful, and Physic, you're up. Okay, Physic will stride forth while drawing his dagger. Um, that will be... For the record, let us remember, moving and drawing is a 5e Pathfinder 1e thing. It's going to cost you an, a- an action to actually draw a weapon. Okay, in that case, he's not going to draw the weapon. He's just going to go to the door. And, I mean, can he roll a perception check to see anything? Hell yeah, he can. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you have no real point of reference. <laughs> you were outside the building this whole time. You probably saw somehow kind of dodging these things coming at him, but you didn't really get a good, good glimpse of it. Okay. So we're just kind of fighting blind now. Pretty much. You said it's a bunch of webs and stuff up there? Yeah. How tall was it? Uh, seven feet for the drop ceiling of, uh, of what would normally be like a ten foot ceiling. Okay, I'd like to throw some alchemical fire at it. Uh, okay, so you're just going to throw it up at the webs? Yep. Sick. <laughs> uh, tell me about Alchemist Fire. <laughs> What's the deal with that? Alchemist Fire is a combination of volatile liquids that ignite when exposed to air. Alchemist Fire deals 1d8 fire damage, 1 persistent fire damage, and 1 fire splash damage. It's got a range of 20 feet. 
point to me where you are, what square you're looking to throw it in, where you want it to explode. That one. All right, uh, roll me an attack roll. Okay. That'll be a 19 to hit. Yeah, that's definitely going to hit, uh, and it explodes onto the cobwebs, which immediately ignite, uh, but just in a, a small spot right now. But uh, you don't appear to have hit a particular creature. Okay. Well, that would be my turn. Okay. Next up, you hear the scurrying of a creature above, especially you, Samal. And as you're keeping an eye on the things ahead of you, or above you, you can tell that one of them has just run out of the hole in the northeast corner. And and then a few more darts come your way. Okay. Uh, we've got a 25 to hit. Uh, that actually hits. Much better. <laughs> uh, you get hit for one piercing damage. Uh, okay. Actually, I rolled a I rolled a total of zero, but it's always a minimum one, which is great. <laughs> and uh, a second dart comes flying for a sixteen to hit. No, sir. I'm never going to hit you with that shield up. I can tell already. <laughs> and a fourteen, no dice. So you take you take one tiny little darts tournament damage, and uh, and then miss miss, and that's going to bring us to Tulak. All right, so with his first action, Tulak will move to the north into the room, uh, getting a little scared outside by himself. And once into the room, can he see anything? Let me go ahead and roll you a perception check as well. Um, you've got a better handle on um, of the direction. So you, you step in and uh, you can see, you suddenly see the darts. Uh, flying down at Samal again, you can tell that they are over, uh, basically over Samal's head somewhere in this direction. But I can't see a specific creature at all? Uh, you can see the ropes and the planks, but yeah, you haven't quite spotted any particular creatures yet. Tulok will shout out, Please, there's no need to attack us right now. We're not your enemies. We are only here to investigate this part of the lighthouse. Show yourselves. We are but your friends. And would like to make a diplomacy check of some sort. Okay. So try to be friendly. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Go ahead and roll me that sweet, sweet check. Oh, that's a six on the die for a 13. A 13. Okay. Um, <laughs> well... Uh, that is a success. Now, normally, I, I mean, it says here, of a friendly and helpful creature, these, these are clearly not quite those. But you still have, um, but you still, you still manage to get through. There's, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, even with a penalty to you. And you hear a voice, and somehow you can hear it as, just eat the mud, just eat the mud. Pixie mud. Magical pixie mud. The creature wants you to eat the mud. And that brings us to round a dose. And we have a couple more darts coming your way there. Samal. Samal. Samal, right? What's Samal, not Samal? Samal. Okay. Samal. Two lock. Natural one. Perfect. And uh, so we got a miss. And then a miss. And then a natural 20 for a total of 20. Spicy. Uh, 20 just hits, yeah. Okay, so 20, 20 is a meat to beat with your raise shield? Uh, 19 is my AC. Oh, okay, I thought it was going to be higher before the raise shield. Okay, uh, sweet. So that's oh, that's a proper critical. Imagine that. On uh, map minus 8, you take a sweet 6 damage from this dart. That's As it managed to penetrate your defenses quite effectively. But it is back to you again. So these, uh, so like this, this layer of wood above us. Does it look as fragile as the the doors? Oh or? yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, Samal, can he reach one of the ropes? Um, how tall are you? Uh, six two. Hmm, I, I I don't think so. So the drop ceiling itself is like at the seven foot mark, and you got to kind of reach through that. And uh, the ropes aren't really, like, dangling or anything. They're kind of holding the planks in place and whatnot. 
Okay. What, I mean, uh, well, tell me what you're trying to do. That'll help me make a ruling. Uh, he wanted to kind of just pull the shitty ceiling down. <laughs> you know what? I'll allow it. Fuck it. Okay. <laughs> that sounds fun. Uh, it's wood made of wood, right? Uh, is it made of wood? Yes, it's made of wood. Okay. So first action, Samal's going to draw his axe. Uh, second action, he's going to raise it up and try and pull down some of the ceiling uh, using the, the pick on the back of it. Uh, so whatever check you want that to be. Oh, yeah, because you've got a boarding axe. It's got the climb trait to yeah. it, doesn't it? That's so cool. I, that makes me want to allow it even more. Um, so, yeah, you uh, you reach up with your, your axe and you just like you just rip down on one of these things. And you you pull a plank down hard. And this small hideous blue-skinned creature drops to the ground and lands prone. He's like, ah! and, uh, and it just starts kind of freaking out. <laughs> okay. Uh, he is then... He's going to swing. He's just going to swing with his axe at this creature. That is a modified 20 to hit. Oh, that hits. Not a critical? No, unfortunately. That is five points of slashing damage. Okay. Anything else from you? No, it's all three actions. To draw the three. axe, to raise it up, pull a board, and then to smash this thing with his axe. So unfortunately, he doesn't get to raise his shield this turn. <laughs> now he's going to die. Uh, all right. So that brings us to Physic, at which point the fire and the cobwebs from here starts to spread. And I'm going to go ahead and just say it spreads out uh, pretty evenly at a uh, five-foot pace per round. Just keep it real simple to uh, navigate here. Okay. Physic is A, worried that he just set the roof on fire, and B, going to stride forth 10 feet, um, stride north 10 feet towards Samal, and he will apply an elixir of life. Oh, wow. Hot damn. Yeah, that crit didn't do good things for me, so... Elixir, you're, you're one, one action moving in, another action... To draw the elixir, and then a third action to apply it to Samal, or give it to him, or whatever, yeah. Uh, and tell us about Elixirs of Life. This is not this is not your typical healing potion. <laughs> yeah, it's you, you regain 1d6 hit points and gain plus one item bonus to saving throws against diseases and poisons for 10 minutes. Oh, that's fantastic. Sweet. So keep that. Keep track of that ten minutes on yourself if you can. Yeah. And go ahead and roll that up. This is the life of a surgeon. Uh, there, there's a quick two HP for you, bud. <laughs> I'll take it. That's that covers two of the three strikes that I got hit by. So yeah, true. Every little bit helps. And that'll be my turn. Okay. Uh, from there, we've got. Uh, yeah, and then from there you hear like a a screaming. You're like. Bah! Just like panicked, like scrambled noises as the fire is encroaching over to where uh, this, these creatures were. Uh, and a um, single dart comes flying out at uh, Tulak for a 27 to hit. That is a crit. Oh, on the dot. You take a sweet, sweet four piercing damage. <laughs> Uh, not not big crits. Yeah, that's like well, that's like almost thirty three percent of my health. So, <laughs> uh, but then from there, you just hear a scrambling from above, and no other darts come flying through. Too luck. Okay, um, I want to make a perception check because I am wondering whether he's still scrambling scrambling around up there or if he's taking off out of the tower somehow. Sure. You look up, and now that this place is a little more illuminated by the fire and the cobwebs, you can see that this there's another one of these creatures above, and it's it's hightailed it through the opening in the northwest corner above and outside. Okay, so it's no longer in the building. It's no longer in the building. It's run away. Okay. So he is going to look at the at one of the boards that's up top, one of the loose ones that uh, Samal pulled down, and gets an idea and he kind of points up towards it with his open palm closes his fist and then points down at the creature that's on the ground next to Samal and will cast telekinetic projectile and try to rip that uh, 
a board out of the ceiling and hit the uh, creature on the ground. Nice. I'm sorry, what what projectile? Telekinetic projectile. <laughs> okay. Not telekinetic? Okay. Uh... Did I say telekinetic? <laughs> oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> Suck it, Barn. <laughs> <laughs> That's a 25 to hit. Uh, that is a critical hit. Hell yeah. Nice. Okay. So it's going to be 17. How do you how do you kill this with with this with telekinetic projectile? <laughs> All right, yeah. Murder this thing. Yeah, basically he just like just like I said looks up and just magically grabs one of the boards from the ceiling and then just whips it down into the skull of this creature. And as he does it, it is like kind of shocked because he's actually never killed anything before, but he's scared and that thing was obviously trying to hurt us and he took a dart to the chest, so yeah. Alright, and uh, you have defeated this single strange creature um, and the other two seem to have run away. Um, but we are going to make... Do you have anything else that you want to do? We've just cast out. You have one action left, right? Uh, yeah, he is just going to uh, emboldened a little bit by that. He's just going to peek out move and peek out of the door to see if you can see where they went. Okay. And so you've moved out. You don't see any quite yet. You don't quite the angle from that direction. But we will move to Samal. Samal is going to stride up to the far door Mm -hmm. and see if it's unlocked now that this room is starting to catch. If we're going, we should be going quick unless we're going to be putting this fire out. Uh, And then with his second action, he will try the door. All right, interact with the door, opens up in a pretty similar fashion to the other two, kind of crumble in front of you without a lot of effort, but they open. Uh, with his third action, can you reach down and grab one of those um, things of mud, the, the pixie mud, or what he thinks is the pixie mud? Yeah, sure. Okay, so with his third action, he'll reach down and grab that. Out! Physic! To luck! To the lighthouse, before this building comes down. And that's your turn? That's it. Okay, and next up is Physic. So Physic's going to look up at the burning roof like, oh, God, what did I do? And just start peeling it out the top, uh, out the northern northern door that uh, Samal just opened. So he'll stride his 25 feet onto the the bridge that's uh, to the north there. Um, So you see, what you see now for uh, up close for the first time is a, a wooden drawbridge. Its timbers are gray and with age and decay. Spans about 20-foot gap between the outbuilding and the sprawling ruin on the island. Rusty chains hang from the ruin's uh, northern wall to the drawbridge's southern side. The chains look ready to fall apart, giving giving the drawbridge's structural integrity an extra layer of dubiousness at first glance. Um, But you step out onto that bridge. You get a creak and a groan, but you're fine. Okay, so that's one action. Uh, to his east, it seems like he sees another one of these little creatures uh, sitting in the water. He does. Actually, he's not in the water. Let me just reveal something here that I forgot to. Um, he's actually climbing across a vine uh, that's suspended above the water and connects to the stone bridge across. To the okay. Other so he's going to kind of panic and not know what to do. Like, oh, God, whatever. And then he's just going to draw a crossbow and shoot at it. Okay. <laughs> so you move, you draw, you shoot. I move, I draw, I shoot for a net one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's, not, he's a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that is that his theme, is it? <laughs> I mean, maybe not the lover, but definitely not the fighter. <laughs> All right, so move, draw, shoot, no success. Next up comes uh, the uh, creature on the vine who just continues to scurry out of your view onto the stone bridge across the way. Two luck. It's you. All right, realizing that he has no angle through here and is kind of worried about what Samal has said about this building coming down, he again will move back into the burning building, kind of ducking down to avoid the flames, and will double move. Actually, will triple move as all three actions to the door. 
you uh -oh. step onto the bridge. All right, I was worried this was going to happen. There's an extra creak and groan as it takes on a little bit more weight than it's ready for. And somehow you're standing there holding a pile of pixie mud Watch and watch two of your two new teammates drop from sight as the drawbridge collapses into the water. And you just think to yourself, how you got here, why you're here. You think about the conversation you had last night with Rin Savinci, and you flash back to the night before. Rin's Wonders is a shop that bears no sign. The structure consists of a ring of what appear to be standing stones arranged in a 60-foot diameter circle surrounding a 15-foot-high dome of wooden beams covered with triangular pieces of canvas. Closer inspection of the standing stones reveals that they are also made of wood frames and canvas, but cleverly painted to resemble granite. The area between the central dome and the surrounding circle is a collection of other dome-shaped tents used to store the shop's wares. It's a clear evening and the fabric of the domes are pulled aside so as to show the many wares and trinkets in this shop, currently illuminated by the fading sun and the rising moon. Within the center dome is Rin's personal domicile. The residual smell of incense still hangs in the air. The aesthetic is open, all curves and no angles. An elaborate map of the night sky hangs overhead, giving the extraordinary sense of being under the actual stars themselves. No doubt thanks to what few know about Rin Savinci. She suffers from severe claustrophobia. A large aging man is making tea to one side, and not just putting all, any old leaves into a pot but he appears to be custom-blending leaves and spices, taste-testing as he goes. A young half-elf gazes at the painted constellations overhead, a serious look on his face, as if trying to find the answers to some unsolvable puzzle. And a squat goblin, poking various trinkets and curios, occasionally his excitement rises at a quality find amongst the trove, but then is quickly squashed when he spots the price tag. Rin is kneeling upon a soft, silk pillow, meditating quietly. Her pupilless eyes slowly open, and she speaks. I am so very glad you have come. Please, everyone, join me. She stands and gestures to the various chairs at a large round table. I trust most of you know who each other are, no? This is Samal Kef, Sage Tulak. And physic. No doubt you are wondering why I have asked all of you here tonight, and I'm afraid the answer to that question is not easily found or given. Her demeanor changes ever so slightly, growing a little bit more serious and direct. I have seen something. At first, I was not sure if I truly saw it. It is the lighthouse in the fog fell. The gaunt light. I saw an eerie glow amid the cupola, faint, barely a whisper. But my eyes see more than most this is known, and I'm sure I see it each night. With, uh, with Rin's uh, gesture and beckon, uh, the large man from, from the kitchen, Epps, will bring over a pot of tea and four cups and set them down gently. He goes to fill them, stops... Closes his eyes for a second as if counting, and then sets the teapot down next to the, the, the cups before taking a seat. I am unsure what this is. At first thought, I might have thought it was a fool adventurer looking to pick the ruins more clean than they already are, but this light is no campfire, nor the sort a lantern makes. Otherwise, someone else would have spotted it already. I do not know if this is danger. The stars have remained silent on the matter. It brings to mind that silly nursery rhyme about the sorceress Belcora. Though she is long dead, I cannot shake the feeling that it is connected. 
It is a rhyme I well remember, and it's true, you do see more than most. So what is it exactly that you see, and why exactly have you brought us here in? It is a blue, eerie light. Something I can only imagine is magical in nature. Not much has happened in the fog then for many a century, though it is generally regarded as a dangerous place, I'm sure you know. The curious thing about this is I'm not sure what to expect at all. Why have I gathered all of you for this significant request? Well, I know you are all more capable than your average Otaran, not to disparage anyone, of course. I have not brought this up to Captain Longsaddle, because I am sure you are all familiar with his general attitude towards requests from his guard. He is unpleasant at best, and I know not if danger truly lurks. I would sooner provide a solution than simply a problem. And that is perhaps where you come in. She turns to the half-elf. I know not what will be found in the fog fen, in the gaunt light ruins. But answers to the questions you seek to ask are often found in strange places. And should you find any hidden secrets at all, perhaps what grows inside you, Sage Tula, will become yours to truly command. Turning to the goblin, Physic, your keen mind is unique. Your perspective comes from more than just the shorter stance. She kind of gives you a cheeky smile. I believe you will spot what others will not, and that if anyone can find a way to help our community at large, it is you. And then turning to the large man, Samal, I feel asking this of you is more selfish than that of the others. I know not what could possibly be waiting for you besides the life you purposely left behind, but I know no one more capable of defending those who take on what may be a perilous task. This is a big ask of all of you. I ask you all humbly to put my nervous heart to rest. Will you join together? Will you search the gaunt light? The uh, half-elf takes a sip and the smell of his tea and turns to Rin. If there's the opportunity to find some of the answers to the questions I have, of course, I will go for you, Rin, and I will see what I can find. The goblin had basically frozen at the trinkets he was poking at, and, you know, after finishing shaking, he, you know, almost croaks out, uh, I, I'm not the one for the job, I don't think, but I, I will do this for your run. I would not call upon any of you if I did not think it important or that you could not handle it. I suggest you prepare tonight and leave in the morning. And I will consult the stars for your journey. Samal blows out a bated breath and scratches at his beard before rubbing the same hand through, like back through his, his silver hair and just sighs, closes his eyes and nods at Rin, knowing what she's asking of him and then takes a sip of his wonderful tea. <laughs> Stemming the Tide is an actual play podcast of the Adventure Path Abomination Vaults and is produced by the Uncharted North Network. Stemming the Tide uses trademarks and or copyrights owned by Paizo Inc. used under Paizo's community use policy. We are expressly prohibited from charging you to use or access this content. Stemming the Tide is not published, endorsed, or specifically approved by Paizo. For more information about Paizo Inc. and Paizo products, visit paizo.com. Music is composed by Will Savino and artwork by Greyhood.
Stemming the Tide is recorded remotely using Foundry Virtual Tabletop. If you wish to connect with us or support this project and projects to come, we can be found at unchartednorth.ca, patreon.com slash unchartednorth, and on all major social media platforms. Links to all credits can be found in the episode description and our website. Thanks for tuning in.